0: There's an old hymn that's called God Moves in a Mysterious Way, and here's some of the lyrics to that hymn. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. I have had many and various conversations with people in our own church family over the months expressing what I think are dark clouds. Maybe personal burdens. But many times they're expressing burdens and concerns with our own church. Could be hurt relationships or certain things that are happening in different ministries. And I think it could be accurate to say in all of those conversations, there's this felt sense that something's off. Something's not right, and there's a longing for it to be right, but we can't place our finger on it. Now, some of you here, you might be saying, what are you talking about? I don't sense that at all. And if that's you, that may be perfectly fine. But I want to say I have felt similar things. Something's off, and I don't know what. And a couple of weeks ago, I was at a conference where my dear friend Thad Barnum was the main speaker, and I was hit with an application, a need for us, for me. And it was a need to pray and pray together more that God would do whatever it is that he designs to do, and that we would listen to whatever he wants to tell us. And so, you're going to be receiving, and if you're on the weekly emails, you'll receive time frames that I want to invite you to join me in praying. And so, this week it's going to be tomorrow at noon. If you can't make it at noon, maybe you can take time out and to focus. On praying that God would reveal to us what we need to see, hear, and understand. But I think we need to live out what even Acts two forty two says. They devoted themselves to the apostle teaching, and then at the end, do you remember what it was? Prayer. They devoted themselves together to these things. So this is why I mentioned this this hymn. That third verse of that hymn starts off, ye fearful saints. Why fear? Why fear? Because according to the illustration he's giving here, is there's a storm. And like what most of us do when we see a storm come, we run for shelter, right? And yet, if this is God's storm for his children, what is the result of this storm? It's like another hymn that says, there shall be showers of, what? Blessing. Blessing. I personally am becoming more fully convinced that the Lord is wanting us to lean into the rumblings that we're hearing. Not to run and seek for shelter, but again, to pray together and to pray that we would pray to take fresh courage And not live in the fear of the rumblings. Not judge the Lord by our temporal senses, but actually say, Lord, you're the shepherd, so we need you to show us what only you can show us. And trust him for his grace to pour out. This is really, I think, the desire at the heart of our King Jesus' summons to the churches in Revelation. Revelation. The Lord's plan is always to grow us in grace. And yet at times, the church and churches can be so blinded to their own sins that Jesus lovingly confronts, not to cause his church to grovel, but to grow. And the question, I think, that comes to us in the midst of every passage to the church is, are we listening to the Spirit? Are we listening? Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Will we listen? Are we listening? I say it that way and I put it in question form because I think then the response of us is, I can't listen unless God does that work in me. I need him to enable me to listen because the message that's given to each of those individual churches isn't just for each of those individual churches but transcends those churches throughout all times and comes to us as well. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. As I think about the messages to the church and the call to listen and as I think about what I'm sensing here, with Ventura, I'm reminded of a year and a half ago when I was in Sierra Leone, and I was teaching pastors. And as I was teaching pastors, I was, we were talking about how, how to interpret the Bible. And I did this one session, and then we took a break, and I went outside, and there was this one pastor who was sitting against a tree, and he had these tears, and he was crying, and he's like, waves me to come over to him and he says, I am so blessed. I am so blessed. God showed me I was wrong. I am so blessed. God showed me I was wrong. I I have been interpreting the Bible wrong and now God has shown me and I am so blessed and I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell the other pastors that I have been teaching and I'm going to tell them, I've been teaching you wrong. God has shown me the right way. Oh, I'm so blessed. I am so blessed he showed me I was wrong. Do you notice how many times I said blessed? I'm so, that, that, he really made that emphasis. And I just sat there in awe. Because how many times do I or do we or do you, when God shows you something, do you say, Oh, I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed God showed me I was wrong. Because for us who are children of God, like this man in Sierra Leone, he wasn't fearing God's condemnation at being shown he was wrong. He knew God is his loving Father. And when God shows him something that is true, that is a blessing, because that means now he can grow in grace even more. And he can grow closer to the Lord. God showed him the error, and he knew he was blessed. That's a godly mindset. That's a godly sorrow. I pray that's our mind as we hear Jesus's correction, and I pray that we would pray for this, that we wouldn't resist it. That's being fearful saints. No, instead, fresh courage, take the clouds we so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on our heads, Ventura. Amen. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, as we move into this text, I do wanna add, I pray that this isn't simply a mental exercise just to know more information. As the book of Revelation begins, it's actually entitled, A Revelation of Jesus Christ. Which I actually take it to mean two things put together. It's a revelation that Jesus has given and it's a revelation about Jesus Christ. It's both. If, if we go into these texts, And we go into Revelation and we just go, wow, that is really cool and that's really interesting. I got a lot of amazing information. And we miss the glory of Jesus' splendor. We've lost everything. The words given to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and so on are revelations of Jesus' glory. And Jesus, in his glory, reveals how he meets the yearnings of all people in each of their own contexts. And so I pray that today we would be reintroduced to Jesus and who he is. And I want to ask you, even now, to take a few moments to pray. God, reintroduce me to Jesus today. And God, please, wherever there might be fear, show me Christ. So take a few moments to pray, and then I'll continue in the sermon. Father, give us ears to hear and listen to what the Spirit says to us. Amen. Before we talk about this vision to Pergamum, I want to give some background, a little bit of background on the city itself. This is the capital city in Asia Minor, so as a result, it carried a lot more political and religious weight than the other two cities that have been talked about already. This city was an important place of the worship of the Greek gods. It actually had four uh, different temples to different Greek gods, but above all the mythological worship, this city of Pergamum also was the first city in Asia Minor to have a temple built to an emperor of Rome in 29 BC. Dedicated to, quote, the divine Augustus and the goddess Roma. The city later on built two other temples to emperors, Trajan and Septimus Severus. Given the emphasis on emperor worship in this city, one commentator actually says elsewhere, meaning elsewhere in the Roman Empire, Christians were primarily in danger on the one day per year that they were required to offer sacrifices to the emperor. In Pergamum, they were in danger every day. Do we get that? Here's a city that I would say promised a lot of earthly delights and even would make claims about eternal rewards. And I think that probably for people who didn't believe in Christ, who lived in the city of Pergamum, they probably thought that they were pretty privileged living in this city. It was very affluent, and it had a lot of power. But what must it been like for Christians to live in that city? Can you imagine? I, I want you to imagine a little bit more. Now, we live, obviously, in a different Culture than Pergamum, but there are some similarities I think that we can see between Pergamum and us. Even though I would say Pergamum, there was a much broader, deeper reality in certain ways. But I want us to think how would I think and feel if I was from this city? Okay? So here's some similarities that I see. Our societies live in affluence, consumption, and discontentment. We're always wanting to consume and consume and consume and consume because we're never satisfied. So we need more, 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 more. Our societies cling to earthly rule above God. As we see, uh, I, I would say, secular humanism on the rise in our society, people are turning to the government as their God instead of God as God. Our societies feeds sexual immorality, and it has crept into the church. And our societies want Christians to be conformed to their mold. And that's what's happening even in Pergamum as well. As you think about Pergamum, and as you think about living here in the United States of America, what what feelings and thoughts would you have if you lived in that city? Anger, anxiety, fears, frustrations. I see one person nodding their head, like, I get where you're going here. But, like, do you, do you get where I'm going here with this? Because we need to enter into this. Let's remind ourselves. Let's remind ourselves of, of that hymn that I mentioned earlier, Ye Fearful Christians fresh courage, take. Our Savior gives us words to impel us to greater confidence and hope. Our Savior is telling us how we are overcomers of this world in these churches, to these churches, instead of feeling like the world is winning and we're going to be destroyed unless we do something. Jesus calls to another way a way of freedom, in witnessing to his glory both now and in eternity. So what's the message for us? What does the Spirit say? What are the applications, even for us sitting here in Holland, Michigan, in the United States of America, and what what ought our heart response be? I'll try to simplify these verses and say it this way let's together focus our attention and affections on Jesus and the feast to come with our father god let's together focus our attention and affections on to Jesus now i'm going to say this over and above satan in this world because what jesus is bringing in is a contrast this is what they're experiencing and they need to know reality in the midst of what they're experiencing. It's helpful, I think, for us to know that when we go through trials and have difficulties in life, we can end up having a tainted picture of Jesus. Do you know that? We can allow the trials to preach to us instead of the truth of God to settle our souls. That's why I think Jesus is very specific about things with each church, They're going through these types of things and then Jesus gives a vision of himself that confronts the anxieties and fears, that confronts the pains and the difficulties of each individual church. Each vision of himself reminds those churches who he actually is. And in Pergamum, Satan and the world appeared to be wielding control, more control than Jesus and they could be tempted to think that Jesus has lost control. Look at verses 13 through 15 with me. Roman, or Revelation 2, if you haven't turned there. Revelation 2, verses 13 through 15. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Satan is wielding power in this city. And he's exerting his power, not only in the world around them, but he's also exerting power by having people creep in to their own gathering. Jesus actually says to this church, you live where Satan's throne is. Satan lives there. Now, by the way, we've got to understand the, the literalistic Type of way that it's being communicated. Is he saying literally Satan's throne? You can see it here. No. The idea of throne is referring to rule and power and the exerting of power. And so it's as if Jesus is saying Satan has set up his base camp in Pergamum. That's what's happening here. And Satan has set it up so strongly that even Christians are being killed. Antipas was put to death. And we know Jesus says Satan loves to steal, kill, and destroy, right? And Satan wants Pergamum all to himself. So he's going to even creep into the churches to make the churches ineffective in witness. Jesus knows. Jesus knows that even though the people of Pergamum are faithfully proclaiming his name, there are people slyly denying him and coming into the church. And Jesus says that they're like Balaam. Now, if you don't know the story of Balaam and Balak, it's in the book of Numbers. We hear this story when the king of Moab, who is Balak, he still wants to maintain his control. He's scared of the Israelites. And so he summons this guy named Balaam to come and exert some kind of power to to curse the Israelites. But God keeps... him from being able to curse the Israelites and then Balak and Balaam come up with another idea. Okay, we won't curse them, but instead what we'll do is we'll try to infiltrate, lure the Israelites through idolatry and sexual immorality. That's how we'll make them impotent. And that's what happens. The spiritual life of Israel degrades. It's not that Satan has to just completely, overtly destroy. Just just creep in and tempt and let people buy into idolatries and love certain things more than God. Which that's, by the way, that's idolatries. Because if, you, if you're sitting here saying, oh, phew, I don't have any idols. Whoa. Anything that you love more practically than the Lord is an idol. 1 Corinthians 13. No temptation has overtaken you, right? And then he says, therefore, flee idolatry. Jesus says to Pergamum, Balaam's have have come into their midst and they hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, this is not a new group of people. Nicolaitans aren't a new group of people from the Balaam's. It's very interesting the word uses here. Nicolaitan actually means overcomer of the people. If you like to mark in your Bibles, you might want to mark this here. Nicolaitan means overcomer of the people, and Balaam means consume the people. Okay? There's Nicolaitans, Balaams. They want to overcome, Satan wants to overcome the church. Now, what we, we don't know much historically about the Nicolaitans, but Given the context, they probably involve themselves in sexual perversion. And they want to make Christ submissive to them instead of them submitting to Christ. This is a problem within the Pergamum church. This is what Jesus says, I have against you. And so I have questions. Like if I was in the Pergamum church, these, were, these, these ought to be questions I should be asking myself. If we're here at, as Ventura Baptist Church, these are the questions we ought to be asking ourselves, I think, and, and probably more. Is Pergamum too tired to fight the sin that's within? Because of all maybe the sin out there, do they, do they even see it? Are they battling the outside? Are, are the battles outside church? distracting them from the infection within them? That's a convicting question, isn't it? It at least is to me. Can we relate to these questions? Will we ask the same questions? As we consider this, imagine how you would respond if you lived in Pergamum. How do you respond living in this country, and the immorality of this nation. Those of us who contend towards more fear and anxiety can get ramped up and just focus on all kinds of problems. And we could even say, well, even Jesus says Satan is behind it all. Ah! I'm running, running scared. And in doing that, we end up losing sight of Jesus, right? Focusing on Satan's work. Jesus is reminding Pergamum to set their hearts on him. And he's reminding us of the same. Are we going to allow the Spirit to settle our hearts in Jesus' victory? Or will we allow ourselves to be focused on Satan's attacks? Fearful Christians, fresh courage. Take. Jesus is victorious over all. Everything. Let's read verses twelve through the beginning of verse thirteen. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double edged sword. I know where you live I pray we'd meditate on those words Satan's attacks get multiple verses in this text and Satan's glory so to speak is snuffed out in this verse and a half Jesus has a sharp sword coming from his mouth. This is verse 15. Look down. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. Do you know Jesus is going to judge every nation? Do you know he's going to do that? Okay? He rules them. No matter how sinful a nation becomes, Jesus is in control. Do you know that? He's in control, and he will judge them, whether it's Rome or whether it's the United States of America. Amen? Amen. Then what do we have to fear? Not only that, but we need to be reminded as we go through Revelation, we need to be reminded of the mindset that the author of Hebrews says to all believers throughout all time. We do not have an enduring city here. We want that, don't we? We want that, but we don't have it. We seek the one to come. Ask yourself, do I genuinely believe this? I have to ask myself this. And I think that my prayer is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to be more resolute in my belief of this. Because it's only in believing Jesus' infinitely superior glory that we're actually going to not live in fear. And we will be faithful witnesses of him in this world. And notice how Jesus describes faithful witness. He gives an example of someone who's a faithful witness. Anybody want to like be bold enough to say the person's name? Antipas? Antipas. Thank you. Thank you for saying that loudly. You're right antipas now if you go back to the king james it says faithful martyr that's the word for witness we would say no dying there's no way that dying could actually witness to jesus christ see that's worldly logic isn't it jesus died and conquered and rose again right And so Antipas is saying, Jesus is more worthy than life on this earth. Jesus is life. What do I have to fear? All they can do is destroy my body. God owns eternity. Whoa. And this is what people in the early centuries saw in the church. People who were faithful witnesses who said, my life is not mine, it's Christ. Is this your prayer? Is this your prayer for yourself? Oh Lord, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Is this your prayer for your children or your grandchildren? I mean, I, I pray for my kids' physical safety, yet at the same time, Sometimes I can get distracted with praying for their safety more than saying, Lord, let them live for your glory, and if they die as a martyr, praise your name. Jesus is the superior hope who anchors our souls in the storms of life. He reigns over all. He's worthy of all. And here's something beautiful. With all that glory and with all that power, verse 13 begins with, That is not just a phrase of Jesus acknowledging where we exist. That know is a knowledge of intimacy. Awareness and intimacy. He knows the suffering. He knows what Satan is doing. He knows it all. Which, by the way, I don't even think the church at Pergamum knew all that was going on in the spiritual realm, right? We don't know all that's going on in the spiritual realm. And Jesus isn't scared one bit. Right? This reminds me of when Jesus is in the boat with his disciples and they're in the midst of the storm and they're all scared. Oh, we're going to die. And I would be, I'd be right there. Anybody else with me? Scared? And then they go to wake Jesus up. We're going to drown here. How could you be sleeping? And Jesus gently reprimands them. I'm here.? Why, why are you scared? Now, I know what I would say, but why are we having a teaching conversation right now? But the point is, he's here. Jesus is here. He knows. And at an instant, he commands whatever he wills to command. He's not scared. Ye fearful Christians, fresh courage, take. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. So then Jesus states in verse 16, so repent. Repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent is a beautiful relational term. It's a term of turning towards God instead of being turned away from him. If I can give another kind of imagery, it's like Pergamum is a scared child with their head down, looking at all the problems, seeing Satan at work, seeing what's going on in their church. Oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. And Jesus is standing behind and he's saying, child, turn around. Come to me. Come into my arms, child, and find rest and peace for your soul. I'm the conqueror. I will judge all. Will you trust me? Do you hear the words? I actually find this to be very intriguing too because Jesus calls the whole church to repent, but there's only a small group that's actually engaging in the sin of the Nicolaitans. Did you notice that? Why does the whole church have to repent if just a small group has a problem? Why? Just think about it for a moment. This is where I kind of wonder if our Western individualistic mind betrays us because we think, I'm good with God. Me and God, we're great. I don't know about anybody else here, but I'm good. Oh, that's a problem. When Cain says about his brother who he killed, am I my brother's keeper? (laughs) Should he have asked that question? because that actually reveals something about his heart, right? I'm just concerned about me and God. That's it. But the church is an interconnected group of people. Jesus made the church that way. Because just as Jesus knows me and cared for me and continues to care for me and love me, so by his grace, I want to express that love towards you. You get that? And so for me to be saying, okay, whatever they're doing over there, that's their thing. No, it's not. It's yours. Do you want them to know Jesus Christ or do you want to make it to the judgment? Because Jesus says, or I will come and judge them. Think about people, even here within our church, that you might know are are verging on and playing with sin. Do you want to see them at the judgment condemned? Do you? Do you? Repent. Engage in the relationships. Point them to the loving, glorious Savior who has power over all and is more satisfying than any type of idolatry or sexual sin. Urge them to love Jesus and listen to what the Spirit says because if you've been given ears to hear, then I know you will yearn for others to have the ears to hear. Jesus is that wonderful. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Together, we should focus our attention and affections on Jesus. When we talk about the world and the problems, reorient our hearts on Jesus who has the sharp double-edged sword and knows where we are. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Let's together focus our attention and affections on the feast to come with our Father God. Let's read the remaining words of verse 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I also will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one except the one who receives it. So Jesus, Jesus is Lord. His kingdom never ends. Jesus gives hope to the Pergamum church that they're going to overcome the Nicolaitans. And so then Jesus now motivates his followers with an eternal feast in heaven. Jesus speaks of a hidden manna, a hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. Now, I use the word feast, and you're like, why are you using the word feast? Well, let's just go here with it, but I think the illustration is kind of like this. Uh, In our day, if there is a wedding, and I think probably especially if you're a man, you're like, I wonder what kind of food's going to be there. You know, so, so, so you think about that wedding, and then you get to the reception hall and, and oh, wow, this is, a, this is a nice place. Maybe steak, you know? And then you enter into the reception hall and there's, you know, the placement of tables. Oh, my goodness, they've gone all out here. And maybe, maybe it's just me, but I'm just thinking food the whole time, okay? Okay. <laughs> Oh, the food is going up a notch again. We got the name placements at the tables. Good. Then you get to the table, and then they have, like, the cards. Oh, really? Okay. I'm here. Bring it on, you know. But you think about that wedding. There's the invitation. There's the seating. There's the name placement. That's actually what's going on here with Revelation. That's just a small illustration to describe what's taking place here. You know, see, think about Pergamum and in the city of Pergamum, where there's this immense idolatry at emperor worship, there are a lot of feasts in this place. There's a lot of celebrations to describe unity around an emperor or around Zeus. And Jesus is telling the people of Pergamum they can have their celebrations. It is nothing in comparison to this. This is the festival of the ages that Jesus is talking about here. So Jesus speaks here of, I will give you the hidden manna. What's the hidden manna? Well, actually, in the tabernacle, when Moses is putting together the ark, God says there's some things that's supposed to be put in the ark. And one of the things is manna. And the manna is hidden inside that ark of the covenant. And where is the ark of the covenant? you remember it's not just in the tabernacle it's in where the holy place the holy of holies and only one person can go into that holy place one time a year and that's the high priest in order to make atonement for the sins of the people of israel one person can enter into there and then speak to the people and say your sins have been forgiven but they don't take the holy place lightly. Why is there manna inside? I think there's manna inside that that ark in order to communicate someday, someday, people will be able to feast with God. And we know when Jesus went to the cross, he took the sins and the condemnation that Our sins deserved. And for anyone who trusts in him, you are forgiven of your sins and reconciled to God. Because when Jesus died, as his body was torn, the temple veil was torn. And the holy place is exposed. And now, God says, enter in to anyone who would turn from their sins, anyone who would repent, enter in to the holy place. Jesus is saying here, Pergamum, You're going to eat with God. I'm giving you the hidden manna. You will feast. What? It's not just a form. It's not just some, some thing that's a ritual that's being done. We will actually see God, the creator. I give you the hidden manna. And then he also says... in here that he gives a white stone. This white stone, I believe, is giving assurance to the Christians. How do I know I'm going to make it to the feast? Well, the white stone actually was, uh, one of the things that a white stone was used in the ancient world was as an invitation to a festival. So, I'm giving you the white stone. Right, you, you, come, you come in And if it's a really fancy wedding, you have the people who are, what's your name? Okay, you're on the list. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't assign that task to some other angel or to, you know, Peter. Jesus is saying, I myself give this to you. You're making it in. Jesus doesn't forget anything. Who who he has saved, he keeps. Amen? Amen. And then on that white stone is a name. A name known only to the recipient. And of course, the one who wrote it. Right? What's that? What's that? I'm going to quote from C.S. Lewis because I think he captures the idea better than I. What can be more a man's own? Than this new name, which even in eternity remains a secret between God and him. And what shall we take this secrecy to mean? Surely that each of the redeemed shall forever know and praise some one aspect of the divine beauty better than any other creature can. Why else were individuals created but that God, loving all infinitely, should love each differently? And in case maybe you don't understand that, I'll try to explain. You and your life here on this earth have unique trials and joys that you have gone through and experience. And you, Christian, can say, the Lord has been with me all the way. But sometimes you can look at your situations and say, God, do you see? Do you know? Maybe like Pergamum. It looks like Satan's winning. Oh, he sees. Oh, he sees. And someday, the culmination of all the things that you have gone through, all the things that you have experienced in growing in your relationship with your Lord and God, someday, Jesus will welcome you into this feast and hand you the formal invitation with the unique name that describes you. And you will say, that's me. That's you. All that you have taught me, all that you have drawn me closer to you with is revealed in this name. And it's like the nickname that the Heavenly Father has given just to you. He loves you individually. What a feast. What a glory. So Ventura, as we see rumblings around us outside in the culture and even within our church and our own hearts, will we turn to fear and fall under Satan's power and control or will we listen to the Spirit's message? Do Jesus' words resonate with your heart and is your heart melted and motivated by the astounding power of God's love for you in Christ Jesus. Ye fearful Christians, fresh courage take. The one who has all control and power loves you and us. So let's together focus our attention and affections on Jesus and the feast to come with our Father God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Abba, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Oh, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As we conclude our time together, we began with the Lord's words on calling us to worship, which is grace and peace to us. And we end with God's words of grace and hope to us. So stand and receive these words of blessing now. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.